This is Joseph L. Flatley, and you are listening to Failed State Update. This is a bonus episode, and it's a uh, repost from my other podcast, The So-Called Prophet from Pittsburgh. And that podcast tells the story of the leadership and the followers and the ex-followers of a UFO cult in southern Arizona called the Global Community Communications Alliance. The reason this is relevant for failed state update listeners is, of course, cults are a sign of the end times. Cults are a sign of a society gone mad, and it's definitely failed state update adjacent, if not downright appropriate. So I um, thought I'd uh, let you guys in on the latest episode, and if you want to hear more so-called profit from Pittsburgh, check it out in your favorite podcast app or go to anchor.fm slash pgh profit This is Joseph L. Flatley, and you are listening to The So-Called Prophet from Pittsburgh. I am recording this uh, Wednesday, July 1st, 2020. I can't even remember what it was like before coronavirus. What was March, I guess? I think I jumped on the ball a little early. Like in the beginning of March, I kind of pretty much stopped going out and doing stuff. Just because I knew once, once it was here, it would have been too late. So I probably missed out on a little bit of socializing, but, you know, we do what we can to stay safe. I know that a lot of you guys have been asking me in emails and when I do the occasional podcast appearance or have a conversation with somebody, a lot of people have been asking me uh, what's going on in the, the compound, in the community with all this COVID stuff. And it's, it's true, you know, it's Gabriel and his followers Gabriel and Neon and their followers, the Mandate, they call themselves the dynamic duo. They're definitely taking this as if it's a sign that the end is near. I, um, you know, I got my little spies everywhere. I often can't say what they're telling me because, you know, either it'll out them or it's like not something necessarily that I can verify right off the bat. But I did hear that as soon as this, uh, this virus thing started, Everybody was under house arrest instead of doing, you know, they would leave to do their chores, but they wouldn't mingle in big groups, you know, but people would get out of the house to work in the the farm or on the hemp farm, the new hemp farm that they have. And uh, other than that, they're stuck at home and Arlen's driving around the compound in a golf cart, making sure nobody's leaving the house. That's what I hear anyways, and officially, the official line, if you go to any of the GCCA's websites, is that they're not accepting visitors at this time. I, I, I hear that they have let go their employees, like farmhands and stuff like that, and construction crew, people who work for the GCCA that aren't cult members or aren't community members, and I hear they've been let go, so 
these guys are in lockdown mode and and Gabriel doesn't seem to be doing too well anyways um he had some medical problems last year so it seems like they're in a holding pattern and by all means if you're listening to this and you're a member of the GCCA and you have like a burner phone somewhere or a secret email account by all means get a hold of me I'd love to talk to you if you want to tell me that I'm doing good job or that I'm full of shit or you want to Whatever the case may be, the lines of communication are always open. Now this, uh, I don't know if you can hear the bird right outside my window tweeting up a storm, but the good kind of tweet too, not the kind that QAnon people send me in the middle of the night threatening my life, calling me a liberal cuck. Anyways... Yeah, so so this episode is an extended conversation with Joshua Lilly. He had an interesting life in the community. He was taken there by his parents when he was, uh, I want to say 12, off the top of my head. He was such a handful that he was kicked out at 16. And then he came back years later as an adult with his wife and was in the community until 2017. And uh, he's got a lot of insight into this. His parents, Dan and Centria, his parents were, in the case of his father, was a high-ranking member of the group before he kind of had a bit of a conflict with Gabriel. And uh, Centria, uh, her original name is Jill Lilly, but uh, Centria Lilly is basically the third in command. She's the one that I got when I called in the office to tell them I was doing a story about them. Uh, she's the one that has sent editors of mine threatening emails, one threatening email, really. And um, so Josh had a uh, a front row seat to a lot of the craziness in this community over a number of years. And not only does he have insight into the community and how it operates, but he really is kind of a focal point for a lot of the ex-members. They all talk to him. All the ex-members talk to him. But um, they all do talk, and they all share stories, and they're all trying to kind of come to an understanding of like what went on there and what is going on there. So he had a couple memorable, really awesome appearances in the in the so-called Prophet from Pittsburgh in the eight-part series. But you know, he was such a behind-the-scenes force, introducing me to everybody, telling me lots of stories. Anytime I needed clarification or needed um, something put into context, I could call him. And um, I feel like his story did not get the emphasis it deserves. It deserved in the in the series because it's just a great story and it's important. So you know, it's about time. I figured we just opened the mics up this morning. I gave him a call, and um, he told me his story from uh, square one. So without further ado, this is Joshua Lilly telling his story. Um, well, I, I was born in Wyoming and, uh, we stayed there till I was about six and, uh, we lived up in the mountains, um, you know, pretty, pretty simple life. Um, you know, my parents gardened a lot. They were kind of hippie and, um, you know, we lived in a Hogan. Um, so when I was born, my dad made like a Hogan, which is like a, <laughs> a plastic bag root mass of uh, sticks and twigs and, 
so that's that's where they brought me home after they had me and uh so we lived up there for i don't know a couple of years and then we moved into town and um so by the time i turned six they decided they wanted to move to hawaii and uh basically they just packed up and moved to hawaii i don't think we really had much at that time they weren't um i mean they were pretty poor and um probably struggling fairly good so anyway we moved to hawaii when i was six and uh enrolled me in kindergarten there and uh my mom was an adoption agent and my dad uh he made like bamboo art and was a farmer of sorts <laughs> and uh so yeah we we lived there um until i was I want to say 12 or 13 and then we bought a hunting cabin and lodge in Wyoming. So we went back and forth. Uh, we went to Wyoming in the summers and stayed in Hawaii in the winters. And, um, so I think I was, I think it was 12 or 13 when, uh, they got the letter from Gabriel's community. Um, and they call it the, the Maki Vento letter. <clears throat> which is supposed to be written by a character in the Arantia book, Makiwenta Melchizedek. And uh, so it was like a end times letter, you know, stating the urgency of the, the need to get to Sedona and the, you know, the state of the planet is just at the, the pinnacle point of, um, you know, erupting with chaos and uh, kind of an apocalyptic type letter, I think. So they immediately proceeded to set up a trip to Sedona and, uh, we were in Wyoming at the time and, uh, we just packed up some stuff and drove down to Sedona and, um, we, I think we were there for about a week and, um, we got there and it was, it was really hard to find the community at the time. Um, they weren't really organized or anything. They had, uh, I don't know. I think they they put like their phone number in the paper and it was like uh, an answering machine. So you had to like call and leave an answer or a message and then they'd get back to you. So I think it took them about two days to actually find or make contact with anybody in the community. And uh, once they did that, they, you know, they got invited to the community potluck, which was, it was like a Tuesday potluck that the community used to um, bring people in get some casserole and um, indoctrinate them into a cult. And uh, so we went to that. And then uh, I guess right after that, uh, Gabriel, you know, scheduled them for a transmission, which is, you know, Gabriel's version of channeling where he brings through entities and tells you about your past lives and yada, yada, yada. So they did this with my parents and um, there was another guy, Greg, or his name was Bankar in the community that was with them. And so they all sat down on the floor around Gabriel and uh, he basically went into the bright morning star, which sounds like uh, Mickey Mouse. So uh, That's one of the channeled entities? Yeah, that's supposed to be the firstborn creation of Christ. <laughs> And, uh, so Gabriel's laying on the floor, he's talking in Mickey Mouse. And I remember just sitting there looking at my parents and I was 12 or 13 and I was just like, you guys, this is nuts. What are you doing? And 
so at that time, um, they made me leave the room because they didn't want any children in there calling bullshit on this. And, uh, so anyway, they kicked me out and, um, anyway, we stayed for another day or so, I think. And then, um, we left and I remember the ride home being pretty, pretty quiet, pretty solemn. And, um, so we got back and, you know, my parents didn't really fill me in on anything other than that we were going to move to Sedona and sell the property in Wyoming and, you know, uh, leave the property in Hawaii and, uh, move to Sedona. And yeah, within a month they liquidated and just got rid of everything and moved to Sedona. So what they heard from Gabriel or Brayden Morningstar or whomever, um, must have been pretty convincing, or it must have really affected them in some way to drop everything. Yeah, well, I have the transmissions. I have the written documents of what was said to them in there. And um, basically, the way I see it is Gabriel is really good at capitalizing on egos. And um, he, he has a way of building people up and uh, making them really fall in love with him. And then they, he has this ability to withhold that love it's kind of like a bad relationship with a woman, you know, it's like, um, when someone falls in love with a woman, um, you know, they're, they're willing to give everything if they're truly in love with them and they'll, they'll sacrifice and, um, you know, do anything for that love. And I think Gabriel's really mastered that technique of just having people just fall for him, you know, and then he, he takes that love away and it's mysterious, you know, and people, people don't quite get the psychology behind that. When you really love someone, you're willing to do anything for them. And he knows that. And he, he does that with everyone that I see basically. And he, you know, he says, he talks about withholding love in um, a lot of the services. And, you know, he talks about God doing that too, with his creation, that if you don't fall in line and, you know, follow the teachings of Christ or whoever's teachings that, um, he'll withhold his love from you, you know, and so be it, maybe you go to hell or Dandros or, you know, these fiery places of purgatory. Um, so yeah, I think that's basically what he's done. What What's an example of something that he would say in a transmission to like feed somebody's ego or hook them? Well, he, you know, like with my parents in this transmission, he, you know, he talks about star seed or, or older souls, souls that have lived past lives. And, um, I think a lot of people, they get off on that. They want to be an old soul. They want to be an indigo or a star child or, you know, these new age terms that, uh, elevate you spiritually above others. And, um, so he would tell, tell people that, you know, you are elevated spiritually above others. You are their teachers. You're, you're the chosen ones and chosen by Christ himself to come and, you know, start this new mission in this paradigm shift of a new governmental society of based off of God's laws. And so he builds all these people up and, you know, if you're a past life and he tells you, you were somebody special in a past life and generally someone that was special, that was attached to him. So if he was George Washington in a past life, maybe you were um, a close friend and, you know, ally of him in that life, you know, some general or something and tell you that. So that would elevate you and, you know, lift your ego up a little bit, but then he'd tear it down. 
So he'd say, you were this person then, but you need to earn that back now. And, you know, if you weren't following the protocol or, you know, every order to the T, um, that was stripped of you, you know, and he'd tell you, you know, this is your last chance. We're in a rebellion for souls here and you're, you're on the other side of the fence basically. And so just constant, this constant ebb of flow of, um, encouragement and then admonishment and encouragement and admonishment. You know, I think people, they form neural pathways around that, you know, it's, um, it's a predictable future, you know, and when your body you know, kind of controls your mind in, in those aspects, when, you know, it's producing, you know, different chemicals and you go into fight or flight and, you know, basically it's, it's like these people have become addicted to the abuse you know, I think not very different from, you know, uh, spousal abuses, you know, you get, uh, you get addicted to it and you continue to fight and it's like, it's the norm, right? And it's like, if you're, if you, your body and mind can't predict the future, it wants the, it wants the safer, predictable path. It knows that like, you know, if this happens, this is what happens every time. And so I think people just get kind of trapped in a loop of, they like being abused by him and they're, co- they're constantly looking for that adoration. And so he'll abuse and abuse, and then he'll give them just a little morsel of, you know, respect and love. And man, they just, they eat that up. They can't get enough. And so they'll go through whatever type of admonishment just to, to get another little morsel of love and adoration from him, you know? Right, right. And y- your parents must have been searching for something or spiritually looking for something in the first place to be interested. Yeah, I think so. Um, on some levels, you know, I, I think the town that we grew up in, Wheatland, Wyoming, is um, it's a pretty small little town. And, um, you know, I think they were not your your average Wheatlanders. And so I think they felt that they were maybe more spiritually advanced than the people around them. And, um, you know, the Arantia book, it gives you, uh, it can give you a big ass, big ass ego. If you read it, you know, um, there's a lot of really big concepts in there and, um, it's a, it's a very challenging book to dive into. And, um, I think with all religion, you know, once you start delving into scripture or some type of revelation, it creates in you um, this ego that makes you think that you are above others and that you now need to go and save others. And um, I think that they felt that call that they they needed to be the bearers of truth to others. And this was the the purest form of revelation or communication between humans and the other side on the planet. And, um, you know, I think most pretty much any ranch book reader you come across today is going to tell you unequivocally that, uh, the ranch book is the highest revelation on the planet and that they'll kind of look at you with disdain and they'll look down on you that you're a lesser of a person. If you don't just like the Bible, accept these, these scriptures as you know, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. And so I, I think that's uh, a lot of it was their egos. Um, you know, I, 
I spent a lot of years trying to reevaluate my own thought process and, you know, thinking that I was special because I was chosen and that's why I was there. And, um, that, that stuff can really go to your head. And, um, you know, I think, um, both of my parents are, you know, they're really unwilling to look at some, some things in their lives and their, their souls or whatever, their personalities that, um, aren't so pretty. And, um, they want to be the teachers. They want to, you know, there's a, there's a certain power in that. It's just like a, a boss at a job, you know, you have power over your employees and, um, that power can corrupt really easily. And so in the community, when you have that much authority and power over other people's lives, uh, you kind of get addicted to that. And, um, you know, my mother is like third in command there. So, you know, she, she's got a lot of power that she will wields. And, um, my father did for a long time. He was an elder, but you know, he was stripped of that. And so that power was taken away from him. And I think ultimately that, that was probably one of the reasons that he left because he felt that he had no more authority there. And, um, you know, he's pretty alpha, alpha type male. And, um, when that's stripped of you there, which, and they strip it clean off you, you don't, you don't get to choose what you want for breakfast, let alone who you marry or who you love or what you do during the day. So I think that was, you know, what caused him to leave mainly. And that's what's caused my mother to stay is her ultimate power there. You guys got there. You said you were 12 or 13. So would that be like 91, 1991 around there? Yeah, I think it was 92 is 90. probably when we, okay. when we got there. So that was pretty early days in the, the community. What was it like? What was life like in the community when you first entered? Oh, it's a hundredfold different than what it is today. Um, basically, it was a bunch of hippies, you know, just a bunch of uh, new age hippies that had bandanas on and wore funny clothes and, you know, were into channeling and spiritual stuff. And, you know, it was like, it's it's infancy. They had not... Um, they hadn't really established a structure yet. So I think it was more just kind of like a, a free hippie community that people, you know, got together and studied the revelation a couple nights a week. And, you know, they hadn't really formed yet. So they weren't really an organization with any power. And, um, so basically everybody lived in their own homes. People paid their own bills. Um, I think everybody might have tithed to Gabriel at the time. I'm not a hundred percent on that, but, um, I, I'm, I know he wasn't paying this rent. You know, people were paying it, paying it for him. And, um, so when I left, I left when I was, I just turned 16. And, um, I think right after that is when they implemented, um, you know, all, all monies go to the organization. And so at that time, you know, uh, they made a major shift with money in the community. And, you know, basically I think that's when they, they created the membership and, um, you know, that you took vows of poverty before God and uh, 
signed, you had the contract where you actually physically signed a contract stating that you sign over all worldly possessions and um, any inheritances, any monies earned um, to the control of Gabriel and Leon. Like, like what's your life as like a 14 year old? You like, you live with your parents or you going to school? Yeah. So they had, um, you know, they had their own like makeshift school. It wasn't, um, there's just some, some hippies from the community, similar to what they do now, but now they're a school, but you know, people just random people that nobody really knew, you know, they're pulling people off the streets and, um, to come in and be our teachers and they'd be with us all day long. And, um, so we'd have schooling in the homes and the community had, I don't know, 20 homes at the time or something. So there'd be classes at different houses and stuff with different teachers. And, um, some of the classes were okay. They were just standardized curriculum, you know, math and science and kind of stuff like that. But, uh, some of the other classes were just weird spirituality and like, I don't know, dance, play, and just hippie stuff. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, we went to school, you know, like, shit, it was eight hours a day. In the mornings, we would go to the land and work first. So they'd get us up to go to the property in Sedona and pick weeds or haul rocks, stuff like that. And then we had uh, school. I think it was just eight hours. And then at night, um, the older kids... Um, some of them had classes, um, at that time, I think I didn't have any classes. I was 13 and I was the babysitter for all the kids in the community that their parents were in class. So I think I was babysitting like 13 kids at age 13 and all the way down to like five month old children to, I want to say like 10 year olds, which, you know, I mean, that's not really a great idea to have a 13 year old watching 13 other kids, you know, in my opinion, as an adult now. Um, <clears throat> and so, yeah, that was, you know, my, uh, everything was very strict. You know, I went from Wyoming being able to like do whatever I wanted and we had a bar and a cabins up in the mountains and we had wild shindigs and, you know, I did what I wanted and, um, when I went to the community, you know, I wasn't allowed to like leave the front yard without permission. And, um, you know, it made me go to bed at nine o'clock at night, you know, and it was all pretty like shocking to me to, you know, see my parents, you know, me, I, I, I didn't have a bad relationship with my parents. I don't think. Um, but when that happened, you know, it was, it really ruined our relationship. You know, they were telling me I couldn't, any of the friends that I might've made outside of the community, I wasn't allowed to hang out with them. And, um, you know, I was a teenager and going through puberty and <laughs> that's already hard enough, but then being going through that and being placed in a high control group, um, it, you know, just created a rebellious teenager that, you know, hated them and hated the whole community. And so that was about the time they, it was mutual. I really wanted to leave. And, um, so Gabriel basically told them to send me out of there. And so they sent me to Hawaii. And how old were you? I just turned 16. Like I want to, I want to say like a week before I left, I think I turned 16. The way that the kids were handled, do you have a sense as an adult that they were like kind of warehousing you, getting you out of the way so the adults could do their thing? You mean like, um, 
like me babysitting them or, or what, you uh, know just like in general it's like it doesn't sound like the adults or like the parents have a lot of spend a lot of time with their kids no they do not and even more so now um, back then it was it was gentle you know now they'll straight up strip you from your kid and say you know you have a codependent problem with your child and it's not about the time that you spend with your child it's about the quality so if you get to see your kid you know, for one hour a day after he get after you get off work and they get off off school, you know, you can't complain about only spending an hour with your child. You get put in a counseling session and reprimanded and told you were selfish and that you're imposing your, you know, codependent issues on your child. And, uh, you know, they did that with me. They did that with both of my children. So, yeah, I definitely, yeah, they don't, they want to break bonds early on. So most of these children don't have bonds with their parents. They're, they're put into other homes to be raised with other families. And, um, you know, it's, it's pretty sick, you know? So I think, uh, in them trying to do this, separate these bonds with the families and the children that they're trying to, you know, make these children loyal to Gabriel over their parents. And I think what's actually occurring, though, is they're creating pissed off kids that, you know, don't get to be with their parents and they're creating a bunch of rebels. And I think this is really going to work the opposite way for Gabriel in the long run, because these kids are going to just be pissed off kids. And they don't I think the majority of them don't uh, don't believe in him anyway. You know, I was going over some of the interviews that I did for the podcast recently, and um, like Jackie was talking about, I think she joined in 1995, and you know, her and some other adult lived in a house with like, it was like her and this other adult that were watching all these kids, none of them were hers, so none of the kids were with their parents, and... 95, that was pretty early. So it's like they must have had a vision for how the kids are going to be handled and how the kids are going to be separated from their parents, like right off the bat. This isn't something that evolved 10, 20 years later. No, and I think, um, you know, this is derived from, you know, other groups. I don't think they came up with this on their cells. I think, you know, something like Synanon is, you know, this practice was implemented in Synanon early on. And this is, you know, pre, pre global community communications Alliance. This is Charles Dietrich and, um, the Synanon community where, you know, Mariah, the head psychologist and head therapist in the community, um, she was part of Synanon before she came to global community. And, um, so I know a lot of, the the techniques from Synanon were implemented in GCCA, with you being sent out as a 16-year-old, I mean, I can't imagine what a 16-year-old kid, 15, just turned 16, would do to, like, have their parents get rid of them. Like, was it that was it that rough between you guys, or was it really a matter of yeah. Gabriel just not wanting to deal with you? Or? Well, it was that rough because Gabriel implemented these things on my parents, so when... You know, in the community, if Gabriel or any of your elders tell you that you have to discipline a child a certain way or any, any rule, anything that they press upon the parents, the parents now are required to do it to the child. So, 
you know, it was, I blame Gabriel ultimately, you know, but he did it through my parents. So, you know, telling me that I had, I had to ask permission to leave the front yard, you know, and that came from Gabriel, but my parents had to implement it. And so at that point I was just furious. You know, I did not have a relationship with my mother or father and I hated Gabriel. You know, I expressed it very adamantly at the time that, you know, Gabriel better watch his ass. And so when you have a, a, a teenager doing that in a high control group, that doesn't look good, you know? So Gabriel had no problem telling him, yeah, ship his ass out of here. And I, I know it was hard for them for sure. I mean, I know that wasn't an easy thing, but they full well believed that they had the support of Christ <laughs> to, uh, you know. And and how was discipline handled? Like, like how was discipline handled with well, kids? Well, at, at the time, discipline, you know, was handled via my father, you know, to me, basically, because I wasn't your average you know, passive hippie kid at the time, like a lot of the other kids. And, um, so there wasn't really anybody there that had the ability to discipline me or I would have told them to go fuck theirself. Um, so it boiled down to my dad and which created a really big rift in our relationship, you know, that he had to be the enforcer of it. So, you know, we, we were just fighting like physically fighting at that time. And so it just got to the point where they just, there was no other option really other than to ship me out of there because I would have probably gone to the point where I would have done something to Gabriel at that age. Right. I mean like, well, the other choice would have been to not be in the community, but yeah, that would have been the only other choice, you know? Um, it's just a, it's a pretty, pretty hard spot to put a parent in, mm-hmm. you know? I, yeah. I can, it's like when you have those those strong convictions and beliefs and a creator and whatever the revelation is that you're studying, you know, if you're that convicted, you're you're pretty much willing to do anything, you know. I mean, <laughs> if uh, God asks you to, to sacrifice your firstborn son, <laughs> you know, that's that's kind of you do it. Wow. And, um, so, so what happens when you're 16, you get shipped off to Hawaii? Yeah, I got a one-way ticket to Hawaii and, um, got off the plane and, um, my parents, they had some friends there that were, it was like my old karate teacher and he was this German guy. He was pretty Nazi actually. And, um, I mean, not really Nazi, but he was kind of a Nazi <laughs> And, uh, anyway, um, I got there planning on staying with them and, um, got there and he had like a tree for it out in the jungle and they were like, this is your house <laughs> that lasted about, uh, I don't want to say a week or two. And I just went and found a place to live. How'd you find a place to live? Um, <laughs> well, I was just young and met other, I knew people there and, um, ended up staying with an old friend and, um, stayed there for, I don't know, five months or something. And then I went and got my own place. I rented a place with another person and, um, yeah. So I was there for about a year and then I got a call one day from my mom saying that, um, I needed to go back to Colorado and live with this family of fundamental Christians. (laughs) And, uh, 
bucks. And I refused. I said, I wasn't going to do it. I wanted to stay in Hawaii and, um, I wasn't emancipated at the time. So, you know, I was a minor and had no, no parental supervision. So she threatened to call the police on me if I didn't get on the plane and, uh, have me arrested. So they put me on a plane again to Colorado and, um, this family was just like, leave it to beaver, you know, like just, a, you know, I'd been on my own out in Hawaii doing my own thing and, um, total freedom. And so they, I got there and this family is just the most goody two shoe evangelical Christian family you could imagine, you know, and I'm this wild ass kid that is just, and, uh, so, you know, they immediately started trying to impose rules on me and they enrolled me in Pooter high school in Fort Collins, Colorado. And, uh, I immediately started making friends and, um, they, <laughs> my bedtime, they told me my bedtime was like eight o'clock or something. <laughs> and I was just like, you, you must be crazy. And, uh, so I just, you know, I did zero shits given and, you know, I just did my own thing and they were just freaking out. And I think the last straw was, um, there was a party one night on the weekend and these kids invited me to it. And so I went to it and they told me I had to be home at nine o'clock. I had no intention whatsoever of being home at nine o'clock. And so I ended up coming home about one o'clock in the morning and they locked me out of the house and I knocked and nobody answered and they were like trying to punish me or something like so anyway, I scaled the back of the house and crawled in through the, one of the windows and got in bed and I woke up the next morning. I could hear the lady just furious talking with my mom saying that, you know, I wasn't a good Christian and <laughs> they didn't know what to people? do with my, like, uh, they were a family that we knew in Hawaii and that we, you know, I played soccer. So we were a big soccer family and this is another soccer family that, and, uh, so anyway, um, I told him, I said, I want to leave. And so they were like, at this point, like, well, you have to follow our rules. And I said, I'm not following any of your rules. So I basically just left and just packed my stuff up and left and went to Wyoming. When you were in Hawaii and you were live, you know, had a roommate and stuff like, how were you, were you working or? Yeah, I did, uh, like some construction odd jobs and stuff like that. And, um, you know, I sold pot, <laughs> which <laughs> helped pay the bills at the time. And, um, you know, pot is pretty, pretty prevalent in Hawaii. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's a weed. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. So I did that. Um, just did like painting and, you know, construction side jobs and stuff like that. And, you know, when you're a teenager, you don't need a lot. Right. So. Right. And then, so, so Wyoming, what, what'd you do in Wyoming? How old were you, would you say, when you touched down? Uh, I turned, I turned, um, I think I turned 18, like right when I got to Wyoming. I think I was maybe a couple months after I got there. And um, immediately got in a relationship with my ex-wife um, within days of being there. And, um, you know, I just, Wyoming is not the greatest place, and especially for the youth. Um, there's a lot of addiction and alcohol and just, um, just a lot of bad stuff to get into. And, um, I kind of realized that in Wheatland where I was at, I was just kind of 
heading down a dead end path. And, um, this one day decided I had enough of it and I moved to Colorado. And, um, so I was there in Colorado for another five years with, uh, my ex-wife. Um, and, uh, so, you know, we just had dead end jobs. I was like a parts manager for a agricultural type company and she was a travel agent and, you know, we'd both been our jobs for five years and it was going nowhere. And, um, we were basically just getting trapped in the system, you know, with debt and we just, uh, gotten a house loan for a brand new house just outside of Fort Collins. And this is before the, the bubble popped. And so we were, you know, getting ready to be trapped for the rest of our lives there. And, um, the house was almost done and I just, all kind of a head that, you know, I, this wasn't, wasn't for us. And, um, so we decided to move back to Sedona and, uh, join the community. And, um, you know, I, I didn't necessarily come up with this all on my own. You know, I had years of my parents, you know, feeding this shit into my head and I had really gotten into psychedelics very heavy. And when you get into psychedelics, they can, uh, definitely make you question your existence and all of reality. And, and so my young feeble mind at the time was, uh, highly impressionable, I think to, you know, what my parents were telling me and, um, traversing the cosmos of psychedelics. And so it, I don't know, it's a mistake that I made for sure. And, and uh, um, you'd have been about 25 at the time, 24, 25. Yeah, I think I was 25 uh, at the time when we decided to pack up everything and move. Yeah, so I think you described to me one of the other previous times we've spoken that you were getting letters from your parents saying, like, the world was ending and you better get here before the world ends and stuff. Is that... Am I remembering oh, that con correctly? Con constantly, yeah. Um, not as much with my mother, um, but definitely with both of them. Yeah, there was a huge guilt trip laid on me and... You know, pretty much any communication I had with my father was, you know, the severity of you know, where the planet is right now and how how crucial it was to get back to divine administration immediately before, in his words, shit hit the fan. And, um, yeah, so it was a constant uh, bombardment of, you know, very aggressive... <laughs> spiritual coercion, I guess that, um, you know, which is any 25 year old that's, you know, your mind is barely formed at 25. It's I'm 42 now and my mind is barely formed. So it, uh, it had a pretty impressionable impact on me, I think for sure. And, um, and what are your parents doing? So, you know, you're 25. So that's like, it's like uh 2000 or something. Yeah. 2004 or something. Um, so your parents have been in the community for 12, 13 years, something like that. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, so, so they're like lifers at this point. I guess I'm trying to understand where the community is now and what your parents are doing when you joined back up at 25. Well, at 25, the, the community had evolved immensely. Um, you know, they had a, 
they had established their bylaws and rituals and you know uh, it's it, was, it had become more of a working machine at this point you know they they'd set up the the procedures to keep people in line and you know it's kind of running like a more finely tuned machine at this point um you know everybody they'd set up the structure like a you know like a pyramid it's definitely a very similar to a multi-level marketing scheme and um basically set up uh an authoritarian structure where you know everybody kind of keeps an eye on everybody and um so at this point you know you got a hundred plus people that are you know put into a system that um they're following and so this is where you know gabriel and the community really started to grow is that you have all of these people working for free and they're not questioning your authority and they're they're following the plan and so it, it definitely it definitely turned into uh, a business instead of, uh, you know, a bunch of hippies of potluck and talking about Jesus. This is, they've created an administration now that's, you know, got a lot of rules. And so, but at the same time, you know, the way that makes the community look is that it's successful, right? So in, in the beginning, when people are coming to these potlucks and these shitty little houses, you know, it wasn't as enticing. Now they have, you know, million dollar homes in Sedona and they have a, you know, 14 acre garden on the Creek in Sedona. And so now this looks very enticing to people to come in and join, you know, at, um, they, they don't really see the, the behind the scenes, um, psychology that's going on. They just see the pretty environment and, um, a bunch of really smiley, friendly people that, you know, say your family and they knew you in a past life. So. Um, this is the point where the community really started to succeed, I think. Mm-hmm. And um, what is some of that behind-the-scenes psychology that you mentioned? Well, basically the counseling sessions and um, basically the, the spiritual correction. So when you join, you know, there's an initiation process, which is six months. And the six months process is kind of designed to strip you of your worldly possessions and your worldly acquaintances. So, you know, you go in and they take your phone from you and they tell you to have stop having contact with your family and friends and um, really focus on the revelation. And um, so after the six months is done, you know, you think everything's hunky dory, fine and dandy. Well, after that, and you join and you sign the contract, this is where the spiritual correction starts. And, you know, you're brought into these counseling sessions with Mariah, who's a trained psychologist. She's savvy in this shit. And they start picking you apart. You know, they start critiquing your, your ungodly flaws. And so that could be anywhere from, you know, having codependent relationship with your children to being negative to, I mean, it could be anything. I mean, they could critique you on any, anything. And, um, this is where it starts to get brutal because they start attacking you as a person and, you know, your name is taken away from you. You're given a new name, similar to a prisoner, you know, like you go to jail and they, you're not so-and-so anymore. You're inmate one, five, six, seven. And, um, so I, I think they really understand that concept there at, um, you know, when you, 
you strip a person of who they are and their rights and um, how they feel and what they like and what they believe, they become a slave. And um, they become a slave that has no opinions on anything other than what you want. And so this is the, the psychology that I'm talking about that's behind the scenes that, um, you know, your children are taken away from you or you're told that you're only allowed to be around your children with certain elders or ministers or you're only allowed to spend a certain amount of time with them or, or even separating you from your wife or your husband. You know, these are, these are heavy psychological things to deal with. And if you come to a community with a wife and children and you know, it's your family. And then you go there and you're told that your wife um, is not your compliment, that she's an older soul than you and you can't be together. And so you're separated right there. And then they say, well, because you've had a child together that um, you have some serious issues that you need to work out. So they separate you from your child. And, and now you're just this lone entity, you know, and you don't know what to do. It's like, you can't, you can't just leave your children and you can't just leave your wife, even though they're not yours anymore because they've been corrupted against you. These are really challenging things. I mean, you know, it's hard to conceptualize this from, you know, a standard society point of view because, you know, um, people don't separate you from your wife in society, you know, so to, to understand what's that like and, you know, how that could even happen, that's a, uh, that's a hard thing for the public to, uh, yeah. I mean, I think, get. yeah. And I think that's really the main difficulty that you have talking to people or I have even with this podcast, because in normal everyday interactions human beings just don't behave the way they do in the gcca unless they're in another cult so yeah so there's like almost no frame of reference yeah i mean and then i'm you know everybody would say well why didn't you just leave or why wouldn't you just you know they don't understand um the strings that are attached to you when that occurs and um you know if you have a child it's there and they separate you from them. You can't, you can't just leave, you know? I mean, I mean, some people could, I guess that, uh, maybe just don't give a shit about their children or, you know, but that's, that's the crux of it. People, you know, in the court systems, I am dealing with child custody and all of this stuff, you know, the, the standard population just looks at it like, well, you were an idiot and you should have known better. And, um, you know, I don't think I'm the brightest turnip in the patch, but I, I do, I don't know. I, I do see how I was manipulated in it at a very, very advanced techniques of, you know, thought reform. And um, people think brain, when they think about brainwashing, that that's just kind of a silly thing. And maybe you um, put like a, you know, clock or something in front of you and hypnotize you, but, um, that's not how it works. And it's, there's these psychological tactics are pretty sophisticated and they use your family members and your children and loved ones to implement it. And it, it's, uh, it's really like getting the blinders pulled over you. You know, you just don't, you can't see it. And especially when you're in, um, you're in a controlled environment where the only information that you receive is from one location, similar to, you know, if you only get your information from Fox news or, 
CBS, you know, you're only receiving one, one side of the story, you know? And so kind of like them, it's like, if you could picture that you're in a room and the only information that you get from the outside world is through Gabriel. And so basically everything he tells you, you believe to be true. So what are you doing? Like when you rejoin or when you joined as an adult, um, you had to hand over your, all your possessions and all, everything that you owned, right? Yeah. So when you join, you go into the initiation process and they, they, they want $50,000 for the first six months initiation process. And so in that time you go in and they want a full financial disclosure of money and property. Everything that you have are destined to inherit or make any of that. And so you make a list and basically, you know, I didn't have $50,000 to hand over to these guys. So I made a list of all of my possessions and, um, they tallied up everything that they said that they were worth. And so I, you know, I gave them everything I had, my TVs to, and I had an RV to a couple cars and signed over everything. And they said that still wasn't enough. That came to like a total of 25,000. And, uh, so they said that they would scholarship me the other 25,000. And, uh, so that's what they did. And, um, so yeah, I basically signed over everything to them before I was even a member. And so they realized, you know, at the end of six months, you got nothing left. What are you going to do? So your only option is to join at that time. And so six months later they said, yeah, here you go. You can be a member now sign on the dotted line. And, uh, I did. And uh, and what do they have you doing once you get back in the community? Like, what's your life like? Well, um, it wasn't real bad at first, you know. And I guess I'm talking about the six-month process. It was, you know, it was kind of like a honeymoon, you know. I mean, they put me back into construction because I was running a construction company at the time. And um, they put me back in construction and it was really challenging for me because they put me in construction with a bunch of hippie guys that had never done building before, you know, and at this point I was running a company. And so they, they put me under these other knuckleheads that didn't have a clue about anything. And so it was really challenging that, that aspect of it. And, um, so anyway, I, I couldn't do it anymore. I was like, I'm not working with these idiots. And, um, you know, in the community, it's all about, um, it's all about power and who's over who, you know, out here in this world, we don't, we don't really subscribe to that. Like, you know, if you're at a job and somebody is rude with you, you tell them to go fuck theirself. And, um, here you kind of have to put up with it and, you know, they have the chip game and these, these ways of making you, you know, submit. So anyway, I, I started a roofing company in the community and just started roofing and, um, so, yeah, I just stayed in construction the entire time, basically, and, you know, became one of the main supervisors of the whole the whole organization as far as construction goes. I was their contractor, and um, but they always kept me, kept me down. They always had somebody above me, you know, like a minister or somebody that knew nothing about construction, and I had to, uh, you know, I had to go to them and, <laughs> like, they were my boss, and... Um, 
just, it was just, it was madness, you know, somebody that were building million dollar buildings and you have a person that knows nothing about construction. That's, you know, telling you how to put the building up in a spiritual manner, <laughs> which is just, it's just a little ludicrous. So when you're in Sedona and you're doing like, like the roofing company, are these companies that you're not working on projects for the community? You're like, they're like side businesses yeah, to raise money? Uh, or? Yeah. At this time, I mean, I was working on homes in the community, but yeah, this was a business for profit that was, you know, I just went out into the community, not the, not the cult community, but the community of Sedona and um, just did contracts and then was paid for it. And then 100% of that proceeds would just go directly to the control of Gabriel and Neon. And, and how many of these little businesses like that are there and are they making a significant amount of money? Or were they at the time in Sedona? Um, well, at the at the time, yeah, they were making a significant amount of money, I think, and yeah, they still have just tons of these little cottage cottage industries and businesses, and um, they don't have as many small ones now. They've evolved into larger, you know, business models like hospice or um, their marijuana growing operation now that they're, you know, I think they're growing maybe 30 acres of hemp or from what I've been told is very hot marijuana. And, uh, so that's, you know, those are bringing in a lot of money and then they have a tour company they have an art gallery. They got a recording studio. They got, they've got dozens and dozens of little businesses that, um, you know, they bring money in through. Yeah. I guess that was kind of like looking again, looking kind of over at all my notes and stuff before I talked to you. You know, it's obvious now where their money's coming from, you know, hospice and now the hemp farm. But um, it wasn't entirely very clear to me, like when they were still in Sedona. Well, in Sedona, they had, um, what the hell was it called? Um, it was a landscaping business. I can't remember what it was called. But, uh, you know, Sedona's quite wealthy and um, they had, you know, 40 guys doing landscaping, you know, so that's, you know four or five crews going out landscaping six, seven days a week and for very wealthy clients in Sedona. And, um, you know, there were people that joined the community that had money. Um, you know, I think Ben Damien, I don't, um, Michael, uh, what the hell is his name? Michael Steinhardt. That's his father's name. Um, it's very wealthy family, obviously, you know, they, Michael Steinhardt is a billionaire hedge fund investor and, um, I believe when Ben Damien came, um, I think he donated several million dollars. And, uh, you know, back then that was a lot of, that's a lot of cheese. And, um, you know, when we made the, the mass exodus from Sedona to Tubac, you know, we bought all these properties and stuff. Um, I believe Ben Damien's father, Michael Steinhardt, you know, gave them a very large loan to do this. And I think what happened was Gabriel leveraged um, several of the properties that they had in Sedona, like the, the gardens, which, you know, it's like a $20 million property and uh, several of the other homes. And so I think the idea was that Michael Steinhardt would, um, you know, put up the capital for the new property down there and some other properties. And, you know, Gabriel would pay him back once the community started 
you know, selling some of the other properties in Sedona. That was their, their bet that they could sell a couple of these properties and then they could pay them back. And, uh, so over a period of time, it started getting really stressful. You can see Gabriel was really losing his shit. And, um, cause he knew that we were about to lose everything because Michael Steinhardt, he's a wolf, you know, he's a, he's a serious businessman. And, uh, so at this time we were about to lose everything. Gabriel made a deal with Michael Steinhardt that he could see his son anytime he wanted. His son could come to New York and, you know, if they needed to go to Aruba for the weekend or whatever, that, um, his son would now do this. And so I believe Michael Steinhardt wiped the debt clean at this point. So, which is pennies to, someone like him, you know, I think he's worth $20 billion or something like that. And so you know, whatever he loaned Gabriel, 10, 15 million, that's nothing. And so when that debt got wiped clean, that's when the community just became too big to fail. I think because they had all, all of these assets and property and um, vehicles and construction equipment, you know, they were set up at that point. And so now, um, without all this debt and all of this, uh, you know, all these assets, um, you know, they can pull any loan they need to pull and, um, basically do whatever they need to do. Do you remember what year they started talking about making plans to move or? Oh, that's a good question. I would say, I would say I was probably 27 at the time. I'm not quite sure what year that would be. It was probably uh, just a year and a half to two years after I joined. It was probably a year and a half after I joined is when they started um, thinking about making the leave out of Sedona. And um, and it took them a while to like decide on Tim McCockery, right? And, decide, and to find the ranch. Yeah, it, it was a big secret. You know, they didn't let anybody in the community know. And, um, so until they purchased it, nobody even knew. And, um, yeah. So, um, so, so, and then what's, what are you doing? You know, like what's, what are the preparations for the move? And like, how do they, how do you actually move a hundred people and all these businesses? And, um, well, it's not too tough for them because the people got to move themselves and then the people had to liquidate everything they own. So I think the rule at the time was you weren't allowed to have more than like four plastic containers, you know, of stuff like of your personal items. And so, you know, everybody had to get rid of any, all their crap and, you know, anything that's valuable, you know, Gabriel and Neon took control of that at the beginning. So, you know, basically they sent, I don't know, I want to say 30 of us down there to just start, uh, building, cleaning, <laughs> weed whacking, you know, just making the, the place shiny, you know, Gabriel, Gabriel and Neon one, you know, they're, they're definitely good at, um, upstepping the aesthetic surroundings of, you know, where the community is, you know, so if, you know, there's rocks in the road. Gabriel's having you go out there and pick up rocks. Like he, so everybody's really busy just uh, preparing for a hundred people to move on this property, which was not uh, equipped 
for that many people. You know, it didn't have the, the septic systems. It didn't have the, the housing. So once everybody got down there, um, there definitely wasn't enough housing. So for a long period of time, they had a lot of the younger people like camp, camp out in the bushes for long periods of time, months and months, you know, and, um, yeah, they just lived in tents and uh, got up and worked their asses off every day to go back to their tent and, you know, cook to death in the middle of the night. And, um, yeah, so people really, people really sacrificed. I mean, it was some real hardships for most of the people there, um, preparing this paradise for Gabriel and Neon to show up. Like you, like I said, you know, the last people to show up, they didn't lift a fucking finger to do any of this. And then, you know, there's a whole parade and a fucking worship ceremony when they arrive and they didn't, they didn't do any of it. Um, what, so how long did it, did it, I, I think you told me before it took two years to like take this ranch and make it turn it into like a compound suitable for well yeah it took about two years just for the community for every every person to get there and then it took the next um five to ten years for it to actually be um capable of housing all the people in the community so i i think just right about now um people aren't packed in like like sardines uh, you know, some homes, there was 30 people in a home. And uh, so they they were packed in, packed in tight. So you were in charge of the construction and basically getting, like, the new buildings and stuff going? Yeah, I had a pretty pretty big role in that. Yeah, I, you know, I, I did the hiring for the employees that were outside of the community. You know, I supervised up to 20 employees. Um, you know, did a lot of the designing for the structures and a lot of physical work on the structures. I probably worked, uh, you know, six to seven days a week, uh, to anywhere from 12 to 16 hours a day. And, um, and then what's your life like when you're not doing construction? What do they got you doing? You're in counseling sessions. Um, you're in house meetings, you're in uh, mandatory revelation study groups. You're in mandatory um, like movie watching. So Gabriel would find a movie that he wanted everybody to watch and you would be, it would be mandatory for you to come and watch it. So you, or you'd be filling out chips um, from the chip game, which that took up a lot of your time. Um, so basically you had no free time. And, um, if there was ever a moment that you thought you had some free time and maybe you planned, a a night out to go to the movies with your wife, um, that would generally get nixed, um, because you would have a house blitz and need to clean your house at 10 o'clock at night. Um, stuff like that. So you really had no, no free time to yourself to even think, you know, and they, they want that. They don't want you ever having enough time to think about the ramifications of what's going on in the community and how controlled your life is and any of this. So they keep you busy hundred percent of the time. And, and the chip game you just mentioned, that's one of the, um, we don't have to go into the, the whole thing cause God knows we've covered it enough, but that's one of the, um, systems they have to, so people can 
rat on each other basically and snitch. Yeah, yeah it's basically a monitoring system mm-hmm. and um, just allows everyone above you to know exactly what's going on in your personal life on you know every every level. So if your wife gives you a chip for whatever, not having sex with her or trying to have sex with her, it could be anything, you know, that that's put on the table in front of, uh, you know, 50 people, the most personal details of your life. And, um, you know, you don't want that. You don't want people going into the most personal details of your life. So you just shut the hell up and do whatever you're told. You know, you try to, you try to just walk that fine line and, um, keeps you subservient. And that's a, and the and members you you said they a lot of your time is devoted to that to the chip game. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know you could get uh, you could get up to ten chips in a day, and for every one of those chips you have to fill out a form, um, and then mail it, and it had to be typed and you know thought out. So you know that could take two hours a night, and then um, you know you have class which is from seven to nine. And, you know, that's sometimes four nights a week. And then when you get off a of class at nine o'clock, you have house meetings or you have like house cleanup. So you'd be scheduled to clean the entire house, which is big, big houses, you know, 5,000 square feet. You'd have to clean the house after you got home from class. And, um, you know, if you have 30 people that live in your home and you got to do dishes for 30 people at nine o'clock, it's not like a, a quick little thing. You know, so you, you go to, you know, literally you work from sunup until 10, 10 o'clock midnight every, every day, every night. Yeah. So, and you know, that, that tactic is designed to break you, you know, you're so exhausted. You you have so much on your plate all the time that, you know, you're not going to cause any waves, you know, you just can't you don't want one more thing added to your schedule. And that's, that's their form of punishment is that, um, you know, your schedule is already maxed, you know, 17 hours a day of, you know, (laughs) structured work and prayer and all this stuff that, um, you basically do anything not to have one more counseling session or one more night cleanup or, you know, so it's, it's just a way to beat you down. Yeah, and and then and while this is going on, are you living with your wife, or are you in different houses? And um, well, for a long period of time, yeah, I just lived with my wife. Um, you know, and there was a point where I could see where they were they were really trying to rein me in, and um, you know, I'm kind of a a person that questions things, and um, there's a point where I get mad, and I kind of lose it and they could see that I was really starting to uh question things and uh so they slowly started separating me and my wife and uh, they gave us both different counselors and forced us into like marriage counseling sessions and in those sessions you know they create division between you and your partner and um you know they'd say that I wasn't spiritual enough and she was more spiritual and that you know we really couldn't be in a relationship because she was more spiritual than me at this point and so at that point, yeah, they separated us and um, they moved me out into a trailer so I wasn't living with her and, um, you know, separated me from my kids. I wasn't allowed to, ha- I wasn't allowed to be alone with my children. I had to um, ask 
ask permission to be with my children. And, and then I had to ask to have like a minister be with me when I spent time with my children. And, um, you know, that's just, so you couldn't be crazy. with your kids. And when you were with your kids, you couldn't be, you had to be, you had to have someone there. You couldn't just be alone with your children. Yeah. I was not allowed to be alone with them. And I, not only that, but I had to go and find someone. I had to ask a minister in the community if they could take time out of their day, like an hour to come and spend that time with me and my children. What's, what's the justification so like, for that? Like why? Um, they would say that, you know, like one of their biggest things is they said I had codependent issues with my children and that I used my children to feel loved. And um, so their reasoning behind that is just, if you have a minister there, someone that can see it when you're doing that, with them that they can call you on it and, you know, give you a chip or, you know, end the, end the session with your children. You know, it's just kind of like a, like a jailer, make sure you're not going to beat your kids or something, you know, and which is, you know, I've got no criminal record. And on the contrary, I donated half my life to a nonprofit religious organization. And somehow I've become this, you know, dangerous monster to my children. And, um, that, that, that's when it all really started coming apart that I was just so furious that they had the audacity to tell me that I, I had to have supervised visitation with my children. You know, I'm, that's crazy. And, you know, one of my children was, you know, he was only a year and a half old at the time. And it's just like, what, this is like the very crucial developmental stage in my child's life and bonding with me. And I'm not even allowed to be around him. You know, I was furious. I, I couldn't, I couldn't, there was no one in the world that could have changed my mind about that. Not God himself. If he would have showed up, you know, I, you love your children and you, you need to be around them. And, uh, so that was, you know, that was kind of the straw that broke the camel's back in the end. And, you know, they knew I was furious and I wasn't going to, Yeah, I wasn't going to bend on that one. So we so. kind of skipped a major point. Both of your kids were born in the community. Yes. Yeah. What, what years, like how, when did that happen? Um, well, my first son was born in 2009, um, in the community and, um, my other son was born in 2014 okay. in the community. He, pa he passed away in 2016. When um you guys were, when you were split up from your wife, were the kids living with her or were they living elsewhere? Yeah, they were living, they were living with her. Um, yeah, they never, I was the one exception with my family that my children didn't get placed with another family. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think one of the reasons for that is because of who my mom was in the community. Yeah. And who was your mom in the community? Uh, Centria. She's basically the third in command there. Um, she's a liaison minister, which is basically as high as you can go below Gabriel and Neon. And, um, so yeah. When, when did you leave the community? What year? Oh, shit, what year was it? Um, God, it was, it was three and a half, four, it was four years ago. So it's 
2017, I guess. Okay. And like, how, how did that come about? Well, um, basically they had separated me from my kids and my wife and, um, it was the middle of the summer and, you know, the summers here are really brutal. And, um, they moved me out into like an old airstream, like one of those looks like a beer can, um, trailers, you know? And, uh, out in the middle of the desert, it's just a hundred and 110 degrees here, you know, and it had, um, it had like a little AC unit in it, in it that I finally got in there after complaining. And so basically it had me out in a trailer, um, working my ass off in the middle of the summer and I couldn't see my kids. And I just started getting really livid with all of this and, um, dealing with Gabriel's wife at the time, TNA, who was the head of construction, who was just insane. We were wasting, you know, thousands and thousands of dollars on her crazy, just crazy. You know, we'd go in and build a house and put in bathrooms and she'd come in and say, I don't like the bathroom here. Move it. You know, I mean, just stuff like that all the time, which was making my job almost impossible to do. Cause you know, I'm dealing with hundreds of thousands of dollars here, you know, trying to build these, these structures. And, um, it was so counterproductive with everything that she did. And, um, I just became to the point where I was so frustrated that my hands were tied behind my back. And I'm, you know, I got a crew of 20 individuals and we're, you know, just pumping out tons of work with just, you know, tons of money involved. And I kept getting admonished for mistakes and, you know, saying, well, why the hell is this bathroom here? And I said, well, it's on the plans. You know, you guys approved this bathroom to be here. It's not like we're just running some, you know, podunk operation. This is a, a serious machine. And, um, so they would, they'd blame me for, anything that TNA didn't like. And, um, so anyway, long story short, I just, I just had it and I was just furious with them and not being able to see my children. And, and I wasn't allowed to see my mother or my father or my brother or my sister. They, they imposed all these rules with my whole family. And, um, one day I was just having a bad day and I was like, I, I called into the office and I said, I need to, I need to go home and just rest. I need to, I need a day to just decompress. And, uh, so I went home and, uh, they sent a minister over immediately to, uh, you know, give me a hard time. And I said, I, I said, I can't talk to you right now. I'm not into a counseling session. I need, I need some breathing room here. And, uh, he wouldn't leave me alone. He came into my room and he was just, you know, just kept messing with me. And, um, to the point where I was just pissed and I was just telling him, I said, look, you fucking told me I can't be around my kids. I can't be around my mom. Like this shit is going crazy. You know, TNA is insane. And so at that time they brought over TNA and my mom in my little Airstream trailer. And, uh, TNA looked at me and she said, you just have to leave. And, you know, I have two children there, a wife, mother, father, brother, sister, nieces, nephews. And uh, I've been there for what, 13, 14 years at this point. And uh, they just said, pack your shit and get out. And so I was kind of a shocker to me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I had nowhere to go, nothing. And so they made me pack up my clothes and 
whatever little, you know, couple bags and, um, loaded me up in a truck and, uh, drove me to Nogales, a town about 15 miles away, just on the Mexican border and, uh, dropped me off. Wow. And, and like, um, what did you do when you got to Nogales? Well, they dropped me off. They, they, they have this stupid ass deal with a hotel down there where they advertise for them. And so they give them like three rooms. So they gave me one, one free night stay at, uh, this shitty little Nogales hotel. And, um, that was it. So it was on me to figure out what the hell to do after that. And, um, so I knew one person and, uh, I called him and he came and got me and he let me stay with him for, uh, you know, a couple of months. And then, um, I think it was about, uh, a month into it, a month or two. And, um, that's when my son died. Oh, wow. What, um, what happened there? Uh, well, um, I just kind of started getting on my feet and, uh, you know, this whole time they wouldn't let me see my children. Mm -hmm. And how old are they at this time? Um, Bastian was, I want to say he was eight Mm -hmm. and Klesson was almost two. And, uh, so basically I just got a call, um, about six o'clock in the morning and it was my mom and, uh, she was crying and, you know, it was really odd that she would be calling me because once you're kicked out of the community, you're not allowed to have any contact with, um, any outside individuals. And so I felt that it was very strange that my mom was calling me and she was crying and I knew right then one of my children had died. And, um, and she just said, where are you? And I said, I'm just right up the road. And she said, you need to come here right now. And so for the first time in months, I was allowed back onto the property and, uh, I got there and police and ambulance were there and came into the house and, um, my mom and my ex-wife and my dad and, um, one of the ministers, Arland and uh, Gabriel's wife, Tiende, were all there with my kid and he was dead. And, um, they all basically sat there and looked at me like I was a fucking monster. And, um, you know, I had no idea what had happened, you know? And, um, yeah, that was, that was a pretty rough day. Yeah, I mean, I just, it was just sickening that TNDA was there and, um, like she was handling the situation kind of thing. And, uh, there was a point where, you know, I, I told I was upset. I was flipped out. My kid just died. And I, you know, I said, what the fuck did you guys do? You know, and she stood up, you know, and I'm, my kid was on the floor there. You know, and I was laying there on the floor with him and she stood up over my kid's dead body and she told me how fucking dare you, don't you fucking dare ever question us. And, and, um, I was so angry. I got up, I was going to kill her. And my, my dad got in front of us and, uh, I grabbed him and threw him on the ground and 
Uh, anyway, it wasn't a pretty thing. So, do they have services, or how how were you able to, you know, just understanding the amount of control this group has? I'm wondering if you're able to have like a normal, you know, service. Oh yeah, let me let me just give you a little synopsis on this. So, um, at this point in time, my kid died. Um, the police are there, and um, they said we had to go to the police station because, you know, they didn't know if there was foul play involved or whatever. Mm-hmm. So we went to the police station and, uh, Amadon Gabriel's son drove me to the police station. And, um, the whole time he was praying and just, just nauseating shit telling me that I needed to, uh, come under God's authority and whatnot all the way to the police station. This is no goal. It's like a half hour away and to the point where I just told him, you know, you need to shut the fuck up. My son just died and you're, you're a fucking idiot. And, so anyway, we went to the police station, you know, I wasn't there, so they didn't really have a lot of questions for me and, and they questioned my wife. And so when we left, you know, I was still married at the time. Um, you know, my wife came out of the police station and she immediately, you know, gravitated toward me and, you know, like we needed to process this together, you know, as a, and, uh, so anyway, I went back to the community with him and, um, went there and, you know, it was just really surreal, you know, and all these people that, you know, I'm no longer in good faith with any of them. And so I stayed the night with my ex-wife, you know, we slept in the same bed and, um, processing this. And the next morning I woke up and Gabriel sent one of the elders over Torrente, and, um, pulled me aside and he said, you have to leave right now. He said, you're not part of this. You're not part of this family anymore. And you're causing conflict here. And he said that the funeral will be next. He told me when the funeral will be, which would be next Wednesday. It's like a week away. And he said, you are allowed to come. And then he escorted me to the gate and kicked me out and said, don't come back until next Wednesday at like three o'clock. That's when the service will start. And so, yeah, I went out, you know, alone, trying to deal with being basically homeless and a kid that just died and losing your whole family. And, uh, you know, the next week was really, really challenging. And, um, the day of the funeral that I was allowed to come back, um, my wife at the time called me and, um, there was a couple other things that happened before this, but, um, we had to go to the, the mortuary in Tucson because the, the mortuary in Nogales wanted to charge us $3,000 to have him cremated. And I had no money. I was broke and homeless. And so I couldn't afford it. So anyway, they sent us to Tucson. And, um, so I picked my wife up on the day of our funeral and went to Tucson to the mortuary. And, you know, that's a really, that's a really shitty experience to go to a mortuary and have them slide a price list over to you to, let you know how much they're going to rape you in the process of your child dying. And so we haggled the deal down to, I think it was 350 bucks and they deliver him in a plastic bag. And so I paid for it. It was the last bit of money that I had and the community didn't offer to pay anything for it. So I paid the last dime I had to have my kid cremated and delivered in a plastic bag. And 
got in the car and went and had breakfast with my, my wife. And, you know, we were doing okay. We were, I mean, we weren't doing okay, but we were, we were processing it. So anyway, I took her back and I think I got there. It was maybe around one or something when the funeral wasn't until three. And I got back and, you know, she wanted me to be there. She asked me to be there, you know, and, um, within 10, 20 minutes, here comes Torrente again. And he said, what are you doing here? He said, you need to get the hell out of here. He said, the funeral's not till. He said, why are you even here? And I said, I told him, I said, well, we just want to go get our kid cremated. And so anyway, he didn't care. He zero shits given. And so he escorted me to the gate again. And he said, come back in two hours for the funeral. And, um, so I had borrowed a friend's truck and I got to the gate where he dropped me off and the truck wouldn't start. And, uh, I didn't have any, anyone to call, you know, I had not, nothing, no money, no, no one. And, um, he looked at me and I'll never forget this. Cause you know, I, I've known this man my whole life. I worked alongside him. I helped raise his children. He looked at me and he said, good luck. And I just said, good, good luck. All right. So that was pretty much my breaking point. And I was going to, I was going to kill myself. And I started walking down the road looking for the first car to jump in front of. And I walked for maybe a mile and not one car came. And I was st- starting to get a little, a little less worked up. And, um, Right about that time, um, the whole crew that I had hired for Avalon, the, the 20 employees they had gotten off work at that time, and they all pulled up behind me as I was walking down the road, and they knew what was going on. And um, they all got me into their car, and they took me back to where my truck was, and 20 guys ripped my truck apart right there and fixed it. And um, so that was... That was a tough one. And then, um, I didn't want to come back for the funeral. I was so upset and so flipped out about it that how somebody could do that to me on, you know, my son's, my son's funeral. And so anyway, I mustered up somehow in me to go back and I went back and, um, God, just brutal. You know, I mean, my fucking sitting there with my family that hated me and the only person that didn't hate me there was my ex-wife. And, um, so anyway, we had the funeral and, um, I had to ask to give my eulogy and they didn't really want to let me, they didn't really want to let me give my eulogy, but finally Gabriel said, yeah, I'll allow it. And, uh, so they allowed me to speak last. So they had all of these other people get up and speak for my son. And, um, then they finally allowed me to get up the last person and I gave my eulogy and, um, it was pretty heartfelt and, um, I think it might've choked Gabriel up a little bit. And so I stood there in front of these people, you know, 120 people. I helped raise all of their children and worked alongside for 15 plus years. And they all just sat there and looked at me with disdain and, you know, animosity and just a lot of hate. Where does that come from? Like, why, why does everybody hate you all of a sudden? Because Gabriel said that I was uh, a defaulter. When I, you know, when you leave the community, you become a defaulter. You're a heretic, an apostate. And um, 
And um, so it came from him directly. And um, so these people all sitting there with his hate in their eyes, Gabriel told me that um, after I gave my eulogy, he said that um, you can, uh, you can come back now. And um, I watched, you know, a sea of people sitting there looking at me with hate all go from hate to love from the instant he said, welcome back to the kingdom of God. Yeah. And he said, welcome back. He said, you can come back right now if you want. And, um, it was like a wave, you know, I get a football game, you know, and everybody's face just turned from pissed to, Oh, we love you again. That's so bizarre on so many <laughs> levels. Like, I mean, like the, the, um, you know, to have a service like that and not, you know, to, you know, somebody died, some, someone, a child died tragically and to like not be able to put away that animosity or that hatred for the funeral or for the, um, what, and then, I mean, how did, I imagine like Gabriel gave some kind of speech or something or like, what was the service? Yeah. Like? So, I mean, it basically went from, you know, a funeral about a child that died to Gabriel and his great mercy. And, uh, you know, basically he said, you're welcome to come back, Van Mon. You can come back now. And, um, basically everybody in the room stood up and cheered and clapped. And he allowed me to come over and get on my knee and give him a hug. And, um, so, you know, at that time I was, you know, I needed my family. I needed my wife. I needed my other child. And so I was more than willing to say, hell yeah, I'll come back. You know, I mean, my kid just died and I was homeless and my mind was still wrapped up in the psychology of, you know, the spiritual revelation and still believing that it was true on a lot of levels. And so, yeah, I said, I'll come back. And, um, so at this time I had several contracts that I had to complete that I had signed, you know, outside of the community. And, you know, I told them this and they said, okay, well you can come back and you just finish these contracts and you'll come back as a full member, just like you were. And, um, you just go back into construction and, um, they basically lied to me about all of this. And so, you know, I burnt the bridge where I, I had a kind of a place to stay and, you know, they were like, don't do it. Don't go back. You know, this is a trick. And I said, well, I might be, but I, I don't really have a choice. And so I came back and, um, they told me that I could use the construction truck that I always use to go finish these jobs and, you know, get this stuff done so I could get back there. And what kind of jobs are these? What are you doing at the time? Uh, just, they're just building jobs, um, just construction type stuff, framing, roofing, stuff like that. And they told me that, you know, I just come back and complete the jobs and, you know, they'd help accommodate just getting that done. And so when I came back, um, you know, they, they told me I couldn't stay with my wife and they put me in one of these like pods and they're like, um, kind of like these little Airbnbs that I built, designed and put on the community property. 
And um, so they charged me 60 bucks a night to stay in one of these little rooms, basically, that I built. And <laughs> so they were, you know, they were trying to drain me of any, any money that I had. And um, then they told me that I couldn't come back as a member. So I, I basically, I came back, burnt my bridge, and they knew that I did. And so then they told me that I couldn't come back as a member. I had to come back as a resident visitor. Um, and they put all, it just means like somebody that is coming to the community to become like an initiate. It's like you're entertaining joining the community. And so it's, it was a slap in the face. You know, I just put in 15 years of my life to this organization and they told me that I could come back as maybe a potential, uh, initiate basically. And, um, they told me I couldn't use the truck and that I would no longer be in construction, which is my trade and that they told me I would be in the garden, which I fucking hate the garden. And, um, so I had to rent a car to go do these jobs, which was like 1400 bucks a month or something. And, um, you know, every job that I finished, you know, I had to show them the contracts, what the money was. And so, every contract I had to give them all the money for the contract. And then they told me I had a three strike policy. So if I, whatever it was, I had three strikes. And if I didn't, if I got three strikes that I'd be gone again. And so anyway, I came back and uh, started processing with my wife and you know, it was starting out to be okay. And then um, they brought me into some, counseling session with some elders and her and uh, told us that we had to be separated again. We had to be divorced legally. And, um, that really threw me, you know, and then, um, little by little, I kept getting strikes. So the first strike I, um, I was getting like a memorial tattoo for my son and, um, I had to go to Nogales to do it. And I asked for for permission, everything. And they said, yeah, you can go. And so I went and I got, came back and, uh, I got a strike for that because they said the way that I did it was not upfront enough or something like that. So that was my first strike. And then, um, and then it was my wife's birthday. So I wanted to take her out for dinner. So I took her and my dad and my mom out for dinner. My mom is a liaison minister, like high up elder. And we got back from that and I was brought into another session. And I was told that was my second strike for not uh, communicating at the office that I was going out to dinner with my wife and, and <laughs> one of the highest elders in the whole community. And, um, I, you know, I said, well, why would I need to check in with the office? I'm only a resident visitor. You know, the rule, I know the bylaws and, you know, resident visitors aren't required to check in with the office. And they said, they said, well, you're a special exception. You're different and you should still have checked in. So it was my second strike. And then the day before my birthday, um, we had class and you know, we have class like four nights a week and I was in class. And, uh, one of the teachers started just blabbing off about how, you know, our children were so much more advanced than the other children of the world, you know, which is a joke, you know, our kids were totally sheltered and, you know, they'd be eaten alive out in society. And I made the comment, I said, they might be more advanced in some ways, but they're definitely not in others. And, uh, Gabriel's daughter, Eleonora, all of 18 years old 
felt the need to correct me in class and say, no, that's not true. And these children should never be exposed to any part of the world. And I didn't say anything after that. I was like, whatever. And so the next day I got brought in, it was my birthday. I got brought into a counseling session with two elders and they said, pack your shit and get out. That's your third strike. And so this is like a month later after being kicked out the first time, or I mean, coming back, I've been there for about a month and uh, kicked, kicked me out again. And I had to start the whole process over again. So how much do you think like, you know, whatever assets you brought to the community, um, when you rejoined for that month, um, like how much do you think that was all worth? Do you have a ballpark or? Oh, they, they probably got seven, eight grand out of me. So that was all for, they tortured you for eight grand for less than 10 grand. Yeah. Might've been less than that even. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, um, wow. So what's, so what do you do from there? Like, are you able to like talk to your son or have a relationship with your son? How's that? No. And then that was when the real, real battle began, you know, um, they wouldn't let me see my son. They were trying to get full custody. Um, they allowed me to, I, I got to see my son for the first time on Christmas Eve after it was like three months, I think, um, supervised for about an hour. And then, um, you know, over the next, uh, two or three years, I was in constant, uh, custody battle hearings and um, being stalked, my emails getting hacked. I mean, just nonstop, you know, of being harassed and hassled. And um, so, yeah, that's, you know, and they were very upset about Sanskrit um, at this time. So they just, uh, yeah, they really, really went after me. When did, um, during all this, when did you end up uh, uh, getting together with Sanskrita? Um, so I was gone for about a year, and um, that's about the time Sanskrita left and um, moved in with me. And um, so she was there for a lot of the court hearings, and um, you know that really infuriated them to see her sitting on my side in the courtroom. And um, so at that point, it was just pure revenge on Gabriel's Gabriel's side. You know, he just wanted me to pay. And, um, so yeah, he definitely made my life hell. He made her life hell and he made everyone else in our lives hell. You know, that was his game. So, so we're talking about, um, the custody hearings between you and your wife, but if, if it were up to your wife, would she have even, her ex-wife now, I guess, would she have even sued you or would she have even fought for? No, n not at all. We would have worked it out completely amic amicably. I'm sure that, you know, as we are now, um, now that she's gone from the community, it's total, it's totally, you know, a mutual respect and um, working stuff out, you know, without courts or lawsuits or, you know, any of this. So where do you uh, stand now? What are you doing now? Well, I'm I am trying to figure out what the hell I'm supposed to do with life, and um, I'm definitely really trying to not focus on the community as much. Uh, it really, you know, it took over my life for a huge part of huge part of my life, and you know, not just being there, but you know, the 
the psychological damage after leaving and um, reevaluating your mindset, your belief systems, um, your values, your morals. Um, those are all pretty challenging things, you know, because when you're there for so long, you know, you, you don't really know who you are anymore, what you like, what your interests are, what your, what your mission in life is. You know, when you're, you're there, you think your only mission in life is to prepare for the coming of Christ. And, um, you know, you get up and you focus on that every day of your life. And now, um, the last thing I want to get up and focus on is the return of Christ. If I even believe in him anymore, I don't, I don't necessarily know. But, um, I guess the, the biggest challenging is trying to, you know, focus on yourself again, you know, because there it's, it's complete selfless service. And, the the idea is to become, you know, the self becomes non-existent and, um, you just live a life of complete servitude to others and God. And, um, and not that I don't think, um, living a life of servitude is definitely a honorable thing, but, um, I definitely don't, uh, I don't get up every day now thinking about, you know, who I can go serve in a godly manner. Um, for the first time in a long time, I really feel that I'm starting to live my life, you know, that I actually, I don't wake up every morning and I'm not hyper-focused on spirituality and uh, the bylaws that govern it. You know, I'm focused on motorcycles or friends or, you know, work, things like this, that um, they might not have a lot of spiritual significance, but maybe they have more spiritual significance in the levels of balance and happiness in your life than attuning your chakras. You know, I, I, I think that's... Uh, there might be something to it, but at the same time, I think it's a load of shit. If you're going to s- spend all your day walking around telling people that your chakras are attuned and that other people need to get out of their root chakra and into their third eye circuit. I, I don't see how that benefits anyone other than it benefits egos. It's like a, a inflated egos is what I see. I'm attuned with my, my crown circuit. Well, fuck your crown circuit. Go, go help somebody. It must be a really weird thing to kind of like, you know, when you left the community, you finally get away from Gabriel, and you did this at a time, you know, we're living in a time now in America where like, new age ideas and wannabe gurus and, you know, are so popular. It's like all over the internet and social media. It's like, you got away from one Gabriel, and now you're in a world with like a million would-be Gabriels running around. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's a double-edged sword because it keeps me on my toes for sure. You know, I definitely keep people at arm's length now. And, um, it's definitely made me a a much more judgy person, which is maybe good and bad at the same time, because I don't really tolerate any, any manipulation now. And I, I was trained well over the last 15 years to be able to spot manipulation and, you know, people, people think I can be very abrasive now because they could say one little thing that might not seem like a lot to them. But to me, it's uh it's a very serious thing. And when I see any form of manipulation through spirituality or religion or um, psychology, I lose my shit. 
and I'll tell you immediately that you're full of shit and why. And uh, I mean, I probably don't make a lot of friends that way, but I really am not looking for any friends that are, you know, anymore. If you tell me that you're spiritual, I might have a real problem with you right off the bat. Uh, because to me, spirit, all, all that does is an ego booster. And when I claim to be spiritual, all that says to me is that I'm somehow elevated above you in, in some respect, you know, and it really does seem like a boast, you know, like it's like, it always seemed odd to me where somebody would describe themselves as like spiritual or, you know, it's like, like, I, I always feel like that's a, decision for somebody else to make to see you living your life and go that person's you know kind of spiritual yeah, he's he's in tune with something but yeah when you when you claim it you know gabriel does this all the time he says i'm a man of god well i would never be so bold to claim that i you know i i have a feeling there could be a creator but i would never be so bold to you know self-proclaim that i somehow can fathom Infinity. <laughs> yeah, you know. And that's it. There we have it. The uh, latest episode of the so-called Prophet from Pittsburgh. If you're listening to this, uh, if you happen to catch this on the stream from my other podcast, Failed State Update, uh, go ahead and check out all the other episodes either at anchor.fm slash pghprofit or look for the so-called Profit from Pittsburgh in your favorite podcast app. If you want to get a hold of me, uh, Joseph L. Flatley, I can be reached through my website, lennyflatley.net, or or you can find me on Twitter at Lenny Flatley. <laughs>